every single kilowatt hour that we consume in Europe and the United States is subsidized. And we shouldn't be making the poorest people in the world bear the cost burden for electrification. And so there is there is a juxtaposition to getting to financial viability that that needs to happen in a way that doesn't burden the poorest people in the world with the cost to maintain that infrastructure. And that was Jessica Stevens, Chief Executive Officer at the AMDA Mini Grid Developers Association, or AMDA. And this is the Power for All podcast. The podcast is a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. Today, I'm your host, Christina Skirka, founder and CEO of Power for All. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the second iteration of AMDA's flagship Benchmarking Africa's Mini Grids report which key findings were launched this week at the beginning of July 2022. AMDA itself is an industry association created by many grid developers to boost the health of the sector and to deliver on global renewable energy access objectives. Our guest today is Jessica Stevens, both my dear friend and the CEO of AMDA. And she was actually among the first employees of AMDA when it was formed five years ago. Jessica was instrumental in initiating and leading the research and publication of the very first benchmarking study, which was launched in 2020. As its CEO, Jessica drives AMDA's agenda to advocate and coordinate with industry, policymakers, government authorities, and other stakeholders to ensure optimal development of the mini-grid sector and its pivotal role in ensuring access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all Africans. Jessica is a recognized leader in the mini-grid space with a particular expertise on policy and regulation and the intersection between public and private institutions in decentralized energy. An entrepreneur who has founded several businesses in East Africa and is currently chairing the Green Mini-Grid Partnership and on the Technical Advisory Committee of the UEF. And for those a little bit less familiar with Power for All, we're a global campaign of over 300 partners around the world, including AMDA, dedicated to ending energy poverty faster. You can learn more about Power for All on our website, powerforall.org, on the socials, and of course, by subscribing to our newsletter. As a 501c3 organization, Power for All depends on the generosity of listeners like you, so please do consider supporting our work at Power for All dot org slash donate, especially if you enjoy what you're hearing today. So with all of that introduction, welcome, Jessica. Thanks, Christina. Happy to be here today. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, well, let's start with a brief introduction of AMDA, um, if there's more to add besides that laborious introduction, which I hope was uh, complete, um, and also capture some highlights of the work you do before we get into the report itself. So over to you, Jess. Uh, thanks, Christina. Thanks for the, th the thorough introduction to AMDA. I think you covered most of the key points. Um, AMDA is the Industry Association for Decentralized, Ut Decentralized Renewable Utilities in Africa. Uh, we currently operate in six different countries um, and work directly with governments on designing regulatory, re regulatory reform for mini-grids, as well as other issues that affect the deployment of mini-grids across the African continent. Um, and we work on Finan developing financial structures that would allow for decentralized utilities to scale across the African market. We represent private sector mini-grids all across the African con continent who are developing and operating mini-grids. So we have a particular lens thinking about how to utilize private sector and private investment in order to electrify the continent. Um, 
As far as you know, specific highlights of our work, uh, AMDA has worked in collaboration with um, with several governments and um, and consultants to build out regulatory structures in seven different markets. Um, as you said, we we co-developed the Universal Electrification Fund. We've also co-developed a tariff buy-down structure for the Sierra Leone market. And our team has been working on a number of guarantee instruments with institutions like the IFC and MIGA in order to make sure that mini grids have the same kinds of insurance products and securitization that larger scale IPP projects have. Um, well, thanks for that, Jessica. And, um, you know, it's been amazing to watch the AMDA growth trajectory. Obviously, um, you know, we've been partners for a long time and uh, have always helped um, really, I think, support the work that you do and, and also help share the data, the very important data, including um, some of what we'll discuss today uh, that that your organization provides on Minigrid. So, so on that report, that benchmarking report, could you tell us what you think are some of the key takeaways uh, that, that you're most excited to share with our audience? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, I think maybe just before I start drop, jumping into the specific data, I think that we can sort of break away the the takeaways from that report into sort of two buckets. Um there's the bucket of things that are really happening in the sector that are super positive and a positive sign of growth trajectory. And then I think there's some things that are happening in the sector that are a little bit paint a slightly less optimistic picture and are really going to require a concerted a concerted effort from the sector in order to address some some fundamental issues that are starting to um, percolate to the surface of the sector. Um, so maybe we can start with some of the positive things that we're seeing in the market. Um, so what we've seen, this is in this iteration of the benchmarking report, we've actually been able to track a year-on-year consumption for a large plethora of the sites within the African continent. And that allows us to have a little bit more visibility into the consumption patterns and the utilization of energy by rural consumers. And so what we see in that data is actually really um, is starting to paint a really lovely picture of how over time these individual people um, within communities are starting to increase their power consumption, um, creating a pathway both to the sustainability of these of this kind of infrastructure, but also as an indicator for the increasing economic viability of these communities. And so um, we've seen a pretty large increase in the average consumption um, across the across the sites that we've been able to track. It's a 25% increase in um, the average kilowatt hour consumption per month between 2019 and 2020, which is on average 8.9 kilowatt hours a month, which you know, in terms of Western consumption is very, very low, but is a radical improvement in the consumption and growth in the market within the African context. Um, and on and directly linked to that is increased revenues. And so we've seen actually a 41% increase in revenues across the sites that we've been able to track um, year on year. Right now, we're seeing roughly eight and a half dollars for all the sites that have been commissioned before 2019. And so the story that we're starting to see emerge is that the longer that people are connected to power, the more that that consumption increases and the better the revenue stability of the mini grids are. And so, you know, I think there's so much conversation, as you know, Christine, in the sector about how how quickly these mini grids can reach financial viability and how quickly we can grow the load. And I think even without a lot of the concerted effort from all of the stakeholders in the ecosystem, we're seeing that growth trajectory beginning to happen already. 
Well, that's and that's really exciting, right? Because it's good news both for the developers, but also for the consumers. Because the more energy one is using, right, the the logic goes, the more benefits you're getting from from that connection. So, so that's super exciting. And let's get into that a little bit more later. Um, you know, just to get it out on the table, uh, what is one of the more sort of frustrating findings that you've, uh, I guess, turned up in this report? Yeah, I think, you know, there are two big frustrations in the in the report. One is how we're financing mini grids. Um, if you think about the way that we built out the energy ecosystem in the West and the infrastructure in the West, transmission and distribution lines have always been subsidized by national governments. You saw a huge influx in the United States and in Europe in order to build that infrastructure. And we're not seeing that same investment um, from governments and from donors in the mini grid market. Um, there's a really large gap between the kind of money that's being you know, talked about in press releases and committed to the sector. Um, right now, there's roughly $1.6 billion that's been committed to the mini grid sector since 2014. And only 60 million of that has actually reached developers to build infrastructure. And so that concessional capital is so instrumental in being able to leverage in private investment. And so without that concessional capital flowing at a rapid pace, it really slows down the rate with which we can build this kind of infrastructure. Um, and so that, I think, is unsurprising for anybody who's working in the sector, but is you know continues to be a disappointment that we really need to see that catalytic capital from DFIs and donors being used to leverage in private sector investment. And that's just not happening at the rate that we need to electrify you know, the half a billion people that are currently unelectrified. Um, and I think the other people... Well, well, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Stop the presses. Let's dig into that for a minute. So people are holding on to money that could be going to get connections. Can you explain how that happens? I, I don't know that I can directly explain how it happens. Um, I think every... Um, I think every institution is a little different in how they think about this. And um, I think the reasons why this is you know, problematic is different in different markets. But at the end of the day, I think there is a very high level of concern that don't particularly bilateral donors have with using taxpayer dollars to, for private sector. And so they've created a lot of barriers and bottlenecks in the process in order to protect that taxpayer money. But what ends up happening when you do that is you end up paying consultants two, three, four X what's actually going to build the infrastructure. And so we haven't really found a good balance in the structure of how these concessional finance facilities are built that allows us to build at scale. Um, and so there's some, you know, I think we have some recommendations to, you know, the broader donor community on how to think about how to start thinking about financing these projects at scale Um we're still trying to finance decentralized energy the way that we finance IPPs. And so it's, you know, when you finance an IPP project, you're thinking about a single investment into a single structure and the concessional capital that goes along with that to support that growth. You know, they're looking at the ESG or environmental and social social and government governance guidelines for, you know, an individual 500 megawatt uh, system. Whereas with mini grids, it's all decentralized. We're building anywhere from 100 kilowatts to, you know, a couple of megawatts of power in an individual site, but we're financing those as if they're individual projects. And that's a very, very slow and tedious way to get financing flowing. And, and so that's part of the bottleneck, you know, um, 
the part of the bottlenecks that we're seeing in the sector. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of different issues that are related to that. I think a lot of the donor community will also say, well, regulatory compliance is really slow. And so we can't, you know, we can't build that. Uh, we can't provide that capital until you're through regulatory compliance, which is a totally valid argument. But that regulatory compliance space is stuck in the same, um, is in, stuck in the same doom loop that the that the concessional finance is. Everyone's looking at the individual project, the individual products projects, and not the holistic picture of what a portfolio for a developer looks like. And and both of the interaction of both of those things is slowing down progress. Okay, well, we're going to get out of the doom loop um, and uh, focus on some of the good news in the report. Um, before we do that, though, some of our listeners might not be familiar with an abbreviation you just used. Could you explain um, uh, what an IPP is? <laughs> yeah, it's an independent uh, power provider. And they're so in, in, Everywhere, uh, whether you're not you're in the United States or Europe or in Africa, um, it's usually independent projects that are building out power generation. Um, they're you know relatively complex structures that bring in a lot of different players in, in the structure. But the IPP is the individual uh, the individual body that's building out the generation asset. So when we build a hundred megawatt wind project, it's an IPP project. The generation capacity is built by a private company. Um, and then there's an agreement between the utility or the government, depending upon the structure of, of a different of countries that allows for that, um, for that IPP project to sell power into the grid. Perfect. Thanks for that. Okay. Well, so back into the sunny side of the street here. So um, the report has some exciting news on how mini grids performed in the last two years. Um, and you're going to need to refresh our memories of exactly what timescale we're thinking of. But in the report, uh, the number of connections seem to have almost doubled uh, in the timescale of the report. And uh, on top of that, the number of private sector mini grids that were operational grew by nearly 40%, which is fantastic. And, and you were sort of relating that uh, in your comments earlier. But I'm curious, what do you attribute that to? What's working, especially after we were just talking about the doom loop? <laughs> Yeah, so there's a couple of different things that happen that are happening right now. I think actually what's really interesting is you can see we've we've almost we've doubled almost doubled the number of connections, but we've only increased the number of assets that are deployed by 40%. So part of what is happening is the communities and the and the families that are living near mini grids are actually migrating towards mini grids and so we're seeing a growth in the number of concessions or the number of connections where assets have already been deployed. So there's sort of this natural migration that's happening that as people that are relatively close are seeing um, are seeing the, the performance of that and the stable power that's being supplied and what that means economically, they're actually moving their families into these villages and those villages are growing. So that's the first thing that's happening. Um, and that and that's a great thing like that, you know, that is sort of a natural what you would hope to, to actually start seeing is that we're starting to see sort of densification in the areas where there's many grids. Um, the growth in the number of connection or the number of, of assets deployed or the number of mini grids on the continent, um, you know, it's I think a 40 percent growth is great in COVID. Um but it's actually a significant reduction in the growth rate that we were seeing in the sector in 2017 and 2018. And so the number of assets that are being deployed as a percentage of, of what's currently out there is starting to slow. 
Um, and we really, and that has to do with, you know, the complexities of aligning regulation and finance. Um, but we're still growing like in a, in a couple of years where, you know, a large chunk of the world economy was contracting, we are seeing growth. There's still so much interest in building out this kind of infrastructure. There's still, you know, a tremendous amount um, of government backing to utilize this technology in order to pop, to electrify their population. And so, hopefully coming out of COVID and coming out of sort of that slow, the slowness and investment that happened over the COVID years, we'll start to see a radical uptick in both the number of connections and the, um, and the number of deployed assets. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, and, and on that, um, I believe the report also shows a light on revenues growing as operational costs drop, which is all good. Um, and I'm just curious, what does that mean for financial viability of this sector? And I asked that question specifically because, you know, it has been this Achilles heel for the last decade as mini grids have become a bigger and bigger uh, proportion of uh, portfolios in energy poor countries. You know, there's always been that question of when are mini grids going to pay for themselves, right? And um, and and it's a, it's an issue that hasn't risen as much with rooftop, both because pay as you go has made it so easy for people to finance um, costs, but it's it's also just a different business model. So, could you talk a little bit um, about this? And you know, are we seeing a trend? What is the implication for the future of growth of the sector? Yeah, the I mean, I you know, I. I hope the I hope the growth trajectory for the sector is is positive. Um, I think maybe just to start with the the way that we finance mini grids looks a lot closer to the way that we should be finance that we finance um, existing grid infrastructure. Right? It's long. You need long term debt. Uh, these are these are large scale infrastructure projects, um, and they require a really large amount of capital. And with when you think about rooftop solar or solar home systems, um, the capital cost to build them is much, much slower. They're also unregulated. So the the way that we think about the cost structure associated with them, because people own those assets, is very different than the way the um, regulated mini-grids operate. And so this idea of like, when are mini-grids going to be able to pay for themselves? I think I don't actually have an answer for you. A lot of that really will depend on the kinds of consumer tariffs that governments are happy happy with and finding a balance between what is equitable and fair for rural consumers to pay and what is needed in order to be able to uh, to create enough revenue from the mini grids in order to have a viable business. And that's a, a tricky balancing act for regulated assets. Um, but you know, by the end of 20, we're in 2022, by the end of 2022, um, there should be at least two companies that will be hopefully profitable at a company level. Um, and I would say that on an individual asset level, we're seeing an increased number of of individual assets that are profitable. So as we move closer to scale and we're able to, you know, more effectively distribute centralized costs, I think we're going to start to see a growth in the number of, of companies that are getting closer and closer to financial viability. But I think that we also need to be realistic about subsidizing power. Every single kilowatt hour that we consume in Europe and the United States is subsidized. And we shouldn't be making the poorest people in the world bear the cost burden for electrification. And so there is there is a juxtaposition to getting to financial viability that that needs to happen in a way that doesn't burden the poorest people in the world with the cost to maintain that infrastructure. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm sorry, just remind us the time scale that you were collecting data from. You, you mentioned COVID. So did this encroach on 2020 or what, what exactly was the time scale for data collection? Yeah, so we were collecting data um, at, in early 2021. So it's taken us a little while to pull the report together and do all the analytics. But the data in the report is um, is reflective from the 2020 fiscal year. Um, and then there's some additional follow-up data collection that we did at the beginning of 2022 on um, rates of connections and installed capacity. So some of the data in the report is reflective of um, of also the growth trajectory in 2021. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And and I, I noticed the report also highlights the bottlenecks that the mini grid industry is still facing. Uh, you were mentioning regulations and financing earlier, um, and and I know that the report and you in your earlier comments, you know, really call for enhanced support from development partners and government. Uh, so my question to you is, why is this still a challenge when, you know, we've seen this growth in interest, we're starting to see carve out in national electrification plans specifically for mini grids, what's standing in the way of scale up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. It's a, it's a complex answer um, because each market is a little different. Um, I think there's a couple of different things that are happening, um, and I think we've touched on these before. One is that some of the concessional finance facilities are really not structured in a way that you can access that capital at scale. Um, they're still project financing each and, each and every individual project, and that that's a really slow way to to build out that infrastructure. Um, but I think there's a there's something that is even a little bit more complex um, happening, and that is twofold that while there are some indications from governments like Nigeria that are really banking on mini grids as a electrification plan for the future, there are a lot of other countries that are a lot more skeptical of mini grids as infrastructure power. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to highlight that, you know, we have a solar PV mini grid in the, in the space station that's orbiting Earth, right? Like this is really sophisticated technology that is the energy ecosystem of the future. We're building mini grids all over Europe. We're building them all over the United States. And I think that it's going to take time for governments to start thinking about mini grids and decentralized energy um, in the way that they thought about telco and about, and about how this is actually a modern energy supply that can really truly support their, their constituents. And because there is this fear that this is, you know, poor man's infrastructure and not real infrastructure, there is a lot that's built into the regulatory processes in countries that's quite slow. Um, and so there's, I think there's a confidence building exercise that needs to happen for some of these governments to feel like this is real power. Um, that's a piece of it as well. Um, but it's, you know, I think, I think like anything new, um, you know, it's, it's challenging for people to have a, a mindset, a mind shift um, in perspective on what this means. And I think the other thing that is happening and consistently happens, um, I think in a lot of donor driven sectors is people get impatient that things aren't moving as fast as they want them to do, or they get ADD and are, you know, quick to move on to the next, the next big thing. And, and so there isn't the like long-term view of how to build out that infrastructure that's underpinning the decisions that that donors are making in collaboration with government. Um, and so I think that's also slowing down the process is instead of really 
investing in what those commitments are, there is this attention deficit that's like, okay, we we built some mini grids and people aren't consuming enough power. And so maybe this isn't the right solution. And actually, you know, we have a hundred years of evidence that if you give people stable power supply, um, then they do utilize that. They continue to grow their consumption and power underpins every economic, you know, every economy. And so we need to be a little bit more patient in the way that we think about deploying that capital in order to start to see scale and the economic um, indicators and the economic growth that we're hoping to see. Yeah. Okay. And look, the report also identifies um, some countries that uh, are well known outside of the report as well for um, having a better framework for this sector. Um, and that includes Nigeria and Kenya. So from, from your point of view, does this really reflect on the sector? Does it reflect on the countries and the government? Um, and what are the countries done specifically differently to improve their regulatory frameworks? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'm not sure that we, it's really hard to answer this question. So I think in Nigeria, um, Nigeria is starting to experiment with how to build out portfolio applications for licensing and regulation. And so how do you build the right support for the regulators so that they have the internal capacity to actually visit all of these sites and make sure that they're built to technical standards and to be able to do that logistically quickly, um, which is a really important part of the ecosystem. Like the regulators need to be financed and funded in order to be able to ensure the viability of those assets. Um, and, and Nigeria is doing a really good job of trying to support the regulators as they as they go through that commissioning process. Um, they're also experimenting with like how to negotiate with developers on portfolio applications, which radically speeds up the process. So instead of trying to regulate every 100 kilowatts as an independent project, really thinking about bundles in um, bundles of projects in specific regions that they can look at collectively, um, which also makes things go quite a bit faster. And I think Kenya, Kenya is a combination of sort of experience on both sides, both from the developers and from the regulators on how to just be more efficient in the deployment of these of these processes. And um, they've made some, you know, they've made some changes to the regulatory framework in the last couple of years that have helped to speed things up. And they're trying to digitize the process, which should make it a little bit easier to navigate. Um, but we're starting to see, you know, we're starting to see that evolution in the Kenyan market. Is that reflective of everywhere else? Not really. <laughs> um, you know, there's it takes a very long time to get through regulatory compliance in markets like Sierra Leone and Uganda and Madagascar. Um, and, and so we're not seeing the same progress, you know, equitably across all of the countries. So, you know, we've been talking about the mini grid environment and mini grid performance in varying countries. And uh, you were also talking a little bit earlier about sort of socialization or um, education uh, in many cases being a critical piece to really get governments accepting mini grids and supporting them in, in the way that they need to be supported to grow. Um, but, you know, I've always found it fascinating that mini grids consistently outperform national and sub national utilities on all sorts of service metrics. Uh, we see the same thing in our utilities 2.0 pilot in Uganda, and that includes uh, uptime, power quality, uh, number of reliable connections, growth in use of energy from those connections, um, and downstream job creation. Um, so from your perspective, you know, how do we really try to get that information out in a way that governments can hear and act on. And, and what do you think that really means for the future of the sector? How do we, I guess, position mini grids 
um, in a way that uh, doesn't necessarily just attack the national grid, but but tells a different story about these these additional benefits that come from decentralized service. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot built into that question. Um, I think that some of it is, t- you know, some of it is just time. And, um, but I, I do think that there is like a much more concerted effort that we need to be putting forth to really introduce government and decision makers and particularly members of parliament, you know, p- elected figures on, you know, what the mini grid of mini grids or electrification of the future looks like. And that, you know, doesn't have to be a- Africa centric. It could also be exposure to some of the, the growth and decentralized energy that's happening in Western markets. Um, I do think that, you know, it's super important to think about what are these economies look like and how do you grow businesses in an environment where you, where you have unstable power? And, you know, as you mentioned, mini grids have incredibly high service uptime. Um, for, you know, for the data that we've been able to collect, we see service level um, uptime of above 98%. Um, to put that in context in Lagos with the, you know, with the national utilities, they, there's a roughly um, 33 outages per month in Lagos. There's four in Nairobi, um, you know, with outages that can last up to 10 hours in some places. And then, you know, juxtaposed to that, you have mini grids who on average are having less than one outage a month. And so I think highlighting the importance of, you know, having transmission and distribution lines running across your country does not mean that you are industrialized. Having power that people can access and use when they need it and how they need it is what industrialization looks like. And um, I think that, you know, some of this is probably media and better PR um, and, you know, the communications that go around that. But some of it is really, I think, national utilities and governments need to be a little bit worried about how they're going to build out or how they're going to maintain their existing infrastructure. There's been so much pressure to expand the grid, expand the grid from the early 2000s. And a lot of that expansion has been at the detriment of ensuring stable power supply. And as solar becomes cheaper, it's not just mini grids, right? Like CNI, commercial and industrial projects are really coming for those utilities. Um, Utilities need their anchor clients. They need these large-scale manufacturing and business clients in order to be able to provide power cheaply to to their poor populations and their individual consumers. And more and more, those big businesses are looking at building out their own generation capacity that's renewable because it's just cheaper. And so I think that it's an indication actually of like a massive transformation in the energy market in Africa that's going to really be driven by economic need. Um, and, And so, you know, I think that is actually a space to be really really positive CNI projects and mini grids really have the ability if utilized well by government to help support the stability of their national infrastructure. Um, And that's just a question of, you know, how governments actually perceive that power and work effectively with the private companies that are developing that infrastructure. Okay, just a few more questions, Jessica, and then uh, we'll wrap up uh, our podcast celebrating a benchmarking report too. Um, and on that, uh, your NACA report was released in 2020, which of course was right at the beginning of, uh, you know, a, a very interesting uh, time in human history. Um, what would you say is new or different from the previous report, either in findings or the kind of uh, research you did, things you looked at? Just what's notable between the two reports? 
Yeah, um, I think the biggest difference that we're seeing is really in the consumption and revenue figures that we're seeing in the sector. Um, we used the same structure in both um, in both studies, and part of the reason to do that is we're trying to be able to create a longitudinal data set on customer behavior. Um, so there isn't, there wasn't radical differences in the way that we collected data or the way that we analyzed data in order to be able to create consistency in in what we're saying. Um, but I do think that the you know there is a lot of optimism for that growth in revenue and that growth in consumption and what that means for the long-term viability of the sector mm-hmm. great um and in terms of you know uh i think and and power for all are pretty well aligned that we don't just do research for research's sake um we do it to generate insight and for that insight to turn into action so on that theme what is your call or a key message to the different stakeholders working to address energy poverty in Africa? What would you like to see on the tails of this report launch? Yeah, so I think that that is an excellent question. And I think that the message is actually quite simple. We need to start thinking about decentralized energy and regulating and financing decentralized energy in a different kind of way. Um, and we need, and what I mean by that is, it's not that I'm saying we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't, we should be an unregulated sector. This is infrastructure; it should absolutely be regulated. But we should start to be thinking about this as regional energy projects or district level energy projects. And we need to start moving away from this like individual single um, single lens for an individual site. And we really need to start thinking about how do you bundle projects, both from an investment perspective and a concessional finance perspective and a regulatory perspective to start moving things along and making things move more quickly. Um, and that, and it sounds very, very simple, but almost everything we've done to date is a mirror of an IPP project or a large scale project that's sort of compressed down onto a hundred kilowatt infrastructure. And that's not sustainable. And so we really, we need to start thinking about mini grid developer projects or mini grid developer uh, infrastructure in the like five, 10 megawatt um, with a five or 10 megawatt lens, which is how you want to regulate it. You want to regulate it at, you know, at a portfolio level. And so that is the, I think that's the biggest piece is, is moving away from this individual project lens and into a more systematic, larger, larger lens on trying to electrify people. Right. And that also means a consistent approach in terms of what the developers have to deal with on the other side, right? Because it's a patchwork of regulations. It's a patchwork of processes. Oftentimes uh, in these countries for projects that are right next to each other, villages that are right next to each other, uh, an entirely similar process is done, but still sort of custom built in terms of permissions and uh, paperwork and all of that. And and that is absolutely not the way for speed. So um, I echo that and support that completely. And uh, one last question for you. Um, So this is a, a, a newly launched report. Um, which is really trying to focus on the key findings, which I think is a great strategy because so many of us are so busy with information overload, et cetera, and really getting to the key findings is essential. And yet um, there will clearly be an appetite for more, more of the detail, more of the background. Um, So is there any insight you can give us on when the, the sort of broader report with the full scope of findings and detail will be released? 
We're on track to to launch the full report by the end of September. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to actually launch it by mid-September. But all of the data has you know, been analyzed and the reports have been written, and we're just going through an editorial process to, to make sure that um, it's consistent across the this, this space. But that report will explore a little bit more on you know, battery usage and backup and what hybridization looks like. Um, it goes a little bit more deeply into jobs and electrification rates and sort of the um, – you know, important figures that you were talking about earlier, earlier on that sort of are indicative of, of what's happening in the sector and sort of the positive moves on job creation and electrification rates. I think, you know, one of the things that we often forget in, in this space is when utilities talk about, you know, connections or their, um, their electrification rate in the country, they're often talking about proximity to infrastructure as opposed to actually having infrastructure in your home. And so you see a really radical increase in the rates of individual household electrification when you're looking at a mini grid versus a grid extension. Um, and so the the secondary report will highlight you know some of those kinds of figures and dive a little bit more deeply into both the growth rates in the sector and the trajectory for growth and you know the opportunity to to bring in additional investment. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and thank you to our audience for listening today. Uh, again, that was Jessica Stevens with ANDA. And, uh, you know, keep watching the space and listening to the podcast. Certainly, we'll be getting into some of those findings uh, in, in future episodes and uh, talking with others in the sector who are also committed to ending energy poverty. Uh, until then, this is the Power for All po- podcast. And thank you for joining us. Thank you.